<sighs> Hi, I'm Isabeau. Hey, I'm Morgan. And this is Womance, a podcast about romance novels, gothic delights, gloomy nights, pounding seashores, creaky floors, strange and prescient cats, people with some legitimate grievances being kept in the attic. <laughs> Soft abundances of creamy skin. <laughs> but mostly the first thing. <laughs> a podcast about romance novels. This week we're talking about the grandfather of gay romance fiction. Gay gothic romance. Gay gothic romance. Gay Wick by Vincent Verga. Gay Wick spelled G-A-Y-W-Y-C-K. Definitely spell it with a Y because if you type in gay wick, like wick like a candle into Google, it will correct you to Gatwick. And let me tell you what, listeners. Nothing less sexy than Gatwick Airport. And the romance fiction is pretty dismal. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We have set the mood. We are drinking a very nice, very full-bodied red wine. It is. Out of stemware. Mm. We are surrounded... By bibliographic By candles that t- smell like libraries. Tiny little candles. Tea lights. And there's a package of unopened Sour Patch Kids do nearby. You to, do you want me to open those for you? I'm wearing sunglasses to help darken the room. <laughs> to set the mood even it's more. It's not a joke. I really am Legit. wearing sun- yep. sunglasses yep. right are. now. Feels like we're about to get steamy. We're about to get suggestive. We're about to get poetic. We're about to get evocative. We're about to get meta. Let's set the scene. It's the summer of 1975. We're on Long Island, where Vincent Varga is beginning to write a novel. It's after Stonewall. He's just been thrown out of the New York Times book review for Insurrection. And he sits down and he thinks, you know what? My mom reads a bunch of gothic romance novels. You know what gothic romance novels don't have? Gay men not as villains. What? <laughs> Turns out that after you hide your wife in the closet, the secret that gothic romance novels begin to take is not the first wife in the closet or the attic, but the idea that the male lead has a gay lover. Mm. Vincent Varga is like, fuck that noise. Why don't I write a book where that isn't the secret, where there's a different secret, where the gayness isn't the nemesis? Yeah. And so he does. Tell us about Gaywick. I finally don't have to summarize the novel <laughs> because I picked Gaywick. Morgan picked Gaywick. There are lots of reasons that even without knowing much about Gaywick, it makes nothing but sense that I picked Gaywick. But uh, Isabeau is going to tell us about it. The covers alone. Let's get a nice tidy summary. I don't know how to give a tidy summary of this monolith. Um, so at its essential heart... It is a coming-of-age narrative of Robert White, Buildings Roman. who is a young man who has a troubled childhood with two parents. He's uh, not particularly sporty. He's very bookish, and he's very ill through much of his childhood. And his Little dad, guy. Yeah, little guy. And his dad wants him to go to Harvard, and he doesn't want to go to Harvard because Harvard sounds scary. But also, like, dudes are going to be tough on him there, but also because he already begins to have a burgeoning understanding of his sexuality, and he doesn't want to be made fun of or like hurt and he's sensitive and he's sensitive um 
his mother is sent to a mental institution and he summarily sends himself via his priest to the mansion Gaywick. Mansion. I was going to say mans. and mansion Gaywick. And he's sent there to work ostensibly as a librarian because there are two libraries, one on the first floor and one on the third floor at opposite ends of the mansion from each other. And he's supposed to catalog them in a way that is identifiable. And he's not supposed to do it alphabetically and he's not supposed to use the Dewey Decimal System. He's supposed to devise his own way of doing it because yeah. there are very special manuscripts there. And the books are so tightly packed in their yeah. shelves. It's like Tetris in there. It's really hard to get them they out. They didn't even know about Tetris. For sure. And so like it's in pre-Tetris. It's the novel takes place in 1899 is the year that we start. So he goes there and he meets uh, Donna Gaylord, who owns Gaywick Mansion. And he has friends and he has subordinates and he has a cast of characters who live on this mansion in Long Island. And it gets really fucked up really fast. Like our hero, Robert White, goes to the island and like pretty much loses his shit immediately. There's a fever dream and people are missing fingers. People are maybe missing other parts of themselves. But um, not really. There's a really scary mystery. There's a series of diaries. There's blackmail. There's mistaken identities. Like, I like. what do you want in a book? Because fucking Gaywick has it. Is that enough of a synopsis? Yeah, it's a lot. It's so much, you guys. It's so much. I have no idea where to start with this book. Should we start with Vincent Varga or should we start with Robert White or should we start with Donna? Yeah, let's start with Robert. Robert's our narrator. Yes. It's told in first person. He's writing a memoir, essentially. From 1969. Of turn of the century. 1899. Uh-huh. When he's 18 in 1899, he's refused Harvard. His mother has just been sent away to an asylum and he is going to Long Island to serve as this librarian, which we've discussed. Which his family priest has set up as a cool job for him. Father Howard. Father Howard, who turns out to be in a romantic relationship with his father. Yeah. One of the things that I noticed in the first 50% of the book was how absent women were in this book. So Robert's mom is sent to an asylum. He goes to New York. He um, meets up with a different priest who's like, yeah, you're going to have this amazing job with Donna Gaylord. And we meet Donna Gaylord, who is this extremely kind, um, tall, tall, dark, Mr. Rochester type. Um, He's very handsome. Extremely. He's not that old. No, he's like a 33. He's like almost half again as old as Robert is. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's not different or weird about romance novels. So like that didn't, you know, set any alarms for me, certainly. And he's also like really, he's softly charming. Like it's really clear that like he's shy and gentle. He's a gentle soul. He's a gentle soul. And he like cares deeply about the people that work for him. And like, so when we finally begin to meet the people that work for him because he hires... Uh, Robert, basically on the spot, we meet a whole cast of the fucking weirdos. Denver's is a former school teacher, missing four fingers. He's like rated as... He's a human roughly shirt. Yeah, he's like the pirate shirt from Seinfeld. Yeah. Um, and he's basically explained to Robert as the sanest person on the island, which upon further 500 pages later is like a dubious claim at best. <laughs> 
so that's Denver's. And like he has dinner with Denver's. Denver's is like, la, 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 Shakespeare. Denver's is always quoting Shakespeare. And, and like Robert is always answering him back in the Tempest where he's like, la, 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 the fish king's wound can never be healed. And then Robert's like, because of his sadness. And then Denver's is like, you get me. Which uh, gave me a little bit of PTSD having just exited a master's program. <laughs> oh, yeah. Denver's is definitely that guy in my MFA class. Um, he found his way to Gaywick when he was hired as a uh, tutor. There's another guy who was hired as a tutor, a music tutor. Keens? Keys. Keys. Isn't that a little on the nose? It's so on the nose. Also, Keys is rated as crazy. Yeah, he has a split personality. His other personality is Beethoven slash murderer like that's one of the things where like Donna tells Robert that Keyes is essentially harmless but mostly mad Mm -hmm. and then he gets to Long Island and Denver's is like he's essentially mad and a hundred percent not harmless he will probably murder you and like our first interaction with Keyes he doesn't recognize Robert as Robert, he recognizes him as this other person related to the family. And we don't know in that interaction who he's recognizing him. We find out later that it's Cormac, Donna's dead, air quotes, twin brother. Spoiler alert, air quotes. <laughs> and he's like, sweet boy, dear boy, blah, 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 endearment, endearment, endearment. Um, and then for the rest of the novel, Keys calls Robert dear. Roll call, Brian. My name is Brian. <laughs> Do you want to say something about Brian? It's so strange. So, like, the book sets you up to believe that Cormac... The twin brother of Donna. The evil twin cut off his penis. Because Brian didn't want to have sex with him. Because Brian didn't want to have sex with him. Wouldn't roll over for him, as it says in the book. Which is crazy. On a fishing trip together. And uh, so Cormac supposedly cut off his penis. But it turns out he didn't. He just cut it. Like an over-seared sausage. Shrug. And that's like the it. That is the it. Also, like he's somehow like been rendered mute by the experience, but he's not mute. And so for like the first third of the book, I 100% thought that not only had Cormac like dismembered Mm -hmm. Brian, but that he'd also like cut out his tongue. And I was like, Cormac is fucked up. I'm really glad that he died in this fire. Yeah. Roll call. The... (laughs) 18 beheaded bees oh god yeah the queen bees um Cormac is fucked up like 100% the way in which that we are introduced to Donna who is the sole survivor of the Gaylord mansion well he's fucked up is also fucked up but like his twin brother Cormac is only presented in terms of like malignancy and terror and like everyone around him has been terrorized by Cormac but some people we're a little bit turned on by it. A lot of it turned on by it. A lot of it. And like that's there's so much to unpack in the first third. Do we want to talk about atmosphere? Do we want to talk about character development? Do we want to talk about plot? Like where do you want to go with this? Like we could go in literally any direction because Vincent Varga like left all the doors open. Yeah. There's also like a cockney chef. Oh yeah. <laughs> and then we have uh, we have Mortimer and Goodbody. We have a uh, what's her name from Great Expectations? 
hanging out in her wedding dress. Oh, fucking Mrs. Haversham. We got a Mrs. Haversham. Yeah. I want to talk about Good Body and Mortimer for one quick second. We got Good Body and Mortimer who are living in the city, but they come to visit regularly. They are Donna's two beast friends in the whole wide world. One is described as a Haitian prince. Mm -hmm. The other is the DA of New York. The DA of New York. In 1899. And they have this incredibly <laughs> loving, supportive, beautiful relationship of one another, of each, like the way in which they support Donna, the way in which they support Donna's family, the way in which they like care about others is just like so wonderful. Yeah. And they're like the only two characters who are like that. <laughs> <laughs> I found Robert like a little bit insufferable. Why was he insufferable? He tends to be like, oh, I'm so hippie. Like, he's a real, he's a real, like, God, would you want to hang out with him? No, I wouldn't have wanted to hang out with Robert. You know why I don't want to hang out with Robert? Why? Because he reminds me of fucking Pip in Great Expectations. He's so Pip. Yeah, I'm like, we have a friend who has a pet bunny rabbit, and she named the bunny rabbit Pip, and like, the second thing she says after she tells you that is, Pip like Moby Dick, not Pip like Great Expectations. For good reason. Here's the thing about Robert that I like, I liked. He's so fey. I loved his fevered sex dreams. So like the way in which as this, a narrator, the only time he's like really shines is whenever he's talking about his dreams. Totally. Which is if you're the type of actual human being <laughs> who thinks you're that way, I want to tell you you're not. No one likes hearing about your dreams. Unless they're super cool and like involve the ocean. Your dreams Isabel are wants to hear that about it. cool. Isabel <laughs> wants to know. And like if you actually knew Robert and like shared an office with Robert. Oh and God, he if told I shared an office with Robert. And he told you about his weird ocean sex dream, you wouldn't be like, this is cool. You'd be like, oh. Well, if he told me that it was ocean sex, so you know how I feel about the ocean and whales. Anyway. Robert doesn't seem that aware of his dream being a sex dream. Totally. He's, he's constantly trying to convince himself he's like... <laughs> Which I think convince himself of what because he's like it's really clear that pretty much from the outset that he's in love, love with, Donna. with Donna, but I think he's kind of doing something that um, perhaps if you're not interested in acknowledging your attraction to someone, you do, which is like God, he really gets me. He's like a super good friend. I had this dream where he came out of the ocean naked. And then I was naked, and then we were the ocean, and, and then we, we pounded were each other. Waves pounding into each other, and it was like he's such a good friend. <laughs> he gets he's me. Basically, my brother. <laughs> oh no, that's almost a little too on the nose for this book. Spoiler alert. Um, oh, God. So this book is like. Why did the incest stuff happen? I think. Why did it happen? I don't know. I can't speak to that. Like, I'm not Vincent Varga. Um, but what I think, what what do I think about incest in this? I don't know. I don't even know if I want to say that it's like God, working. I hope you only have one thought about incest. I have lots of thoughts about incest. I've been watching Game of Thrones as long as anybody. Um, but it's I, bad though, right? Like, you're going to say it's bad? Like, oh, you're like not going to be like, I'm down with it? Oh, like in terms of like hemophilia? Yeah, it's bad genetically. <laughs> Listeners, I can't describe to you Morgan's face. Like, but here's the thing, like about incest in general, like as a yum that human beings have. As I like a young yum as a yum. Yeah, people okay. have like incest fantasies. Yeah, I like cool do that. But like usually in texts 
of this length, of this volume, of this like sort of like wretched tension. Like in so many ways, this book is like Frankenstein or Jane Eyre or Weathering Heights. Like this book is just like punishing in its atmospheric qualities. And like usually incest is working in like a symbolic way in those texts. Mm. I'm not sure that incest is working symbolically here. No, it's literally incest. All the time though. It's like wall to wall incest. (laughs) And like, I don't know what to do with that. Like, I don't, I don't know how to read that other than is literal for the text itself. Because yeah. Right. So like, I don't, I don't know. Like Vincent Farga described this as a song of hope. As, uh, as this is a novel of Song of Hope for the gay community before the AIDS epidemic. And like, I don't know how to read this as a Song of Hope with so much GD incest. Yeah. I like don't know what to do. And like systematic abuse. So they start off. Systematic li- abuse. Yeah. Yeah. They have this terrible nanny <laughs> who is obsessed with them pooping mm-hmm. and beats them. Mm-hmm. And Cormac is seen as the hero because he is able to resist. Mm-hmm. Although that leads to him being even more abused. And then they get this like super nice nanny. Here, okay, let's like we even have to go further back, right? Because like their mother is this beautiful ingenue whose dreams of being in the opera are frustrated. She meets their father at the opera and he's like, I'll give you everything that you ever wanted. And she's like, the only thing I ever wanted was to really be in the arts. Like, I don't want to have kids. I don't want anything like that. And then she falls pregnant, uh, like pretty much immediately. And they get married and then she gets pregnant. Yeah. And she goes into a motherfucking stupor. Like, she shuts herself away. She won't see anyone. She's Postpartum depression. But it's like prepartum. Like, she is pregnant. She didn't want to have a baby. Yeah. And she, like, she's super pregnant because she's got twins. But she doesn't know that she has twins. So then, like, that's a whole thing. And she, like, loses her mind about being pregnant and, like, about the future that she now has to face as a mother. And all of that felt like, I don't know, typically gothic or, like, kind of new and fascinating in a way about, like, women's bodies and, like, like the alienation of reproduction. Like, Mm -hmm. cool. I was there for that. Uh Uh-huh. The alienation of reproduction, yes. And then she... There I go, underlining by repeating. (laughs) And then she has the first baby and like the birth of it nearly kills her. And then the doctor screams 10 minutes after she's delivered one. (gasps) I see another head. It's not the afterbirth. It's not the afterbirth. There's another one. And so she delivers two. And Cormac is five pounds, however many ounces. And Donna is three pounds, however many ounces. And she has this thing that she says immediately in that moment of... How could you bully your baby brother in the womb? And everyone's like, oh, that's super normal for twins. Like, you can't hold it against anybody. And, like, it's not indicative of who they are as people. Except it is. Except it is! And also, in real life, if you start dating someone who's a twin, ask who was heavier. Ask who was heavier. (laughs) Ask who picked the other one more. And see if it doesn't align exactly with their personalities today. You know, my brother has a fear of identical twins. They freak him out. That's so weird. One of my very favorite people in the whole world had a set of twins and they are the best. They came out of the womb. It's just like 22 minutes apart. You don't have to convince me. And they, they put them in the same crib because they were so sad without each other. And they immediately started holding hands. That closeness kind of freaks me out, though. Like, I love it. Do you ever see a feeling and you're like, there's no way I'll comprehend that? I look at like twins and their closeness and I'm like, wow, that's a relationship 
I will not understand. I look at women who have sisters and I'm like, there's no way I'll Mm. get it. Uh, Yeah. Like, I just think like, I'm always resentful of people who are like, she's like my sister. I'm like, no, she's not. That's a special thing. That's its own thing. I don't agree with that. Or people who are like, he's like a brother to me. I'm like, probably not though. People have known each other for like five years. Well, here's the thing. Are you joking? That is not like your sister. That is not like your brother. See, like the, here's the difference about like families. And I think like this, like this relates back to the book in this way. Like, yeah, we're fine. We're still on on track about like relation. Right. Because like there's, There's this idea about how one builds family or builds love. Because you say this thing, like, I resent the idea that, like, you could have familial feelings about a person that isn't a family member. And I'm like... I don't resent the fact that you would have those feelings. I resent the fact that you're trying to, like, attach the name to that feeling. Like, why can't you just say, like, they're my really good friend? Like, why do you have to... Like, it's not the same. Because it doesn't feel deep enough. And, like, I think... Yeah, that's why I'm mad at it. (laughs) Good friend doesn't feel deep enough. Something like good friend doesn't feel complicated enough. Sure. That's another really good way of describing it. And like, I think part of the thing about having a long standing, close, intimate friendship with someone who knows your narrative and your history and all of the major players is that you are a more than friend at that point. Like friends can like really walk in and out and like, you know, you can pick it up or drop it with whatever. Yeah. But like an intimate friend that you really can't pick up or drop or like maneuver out of. Yeah. Like, cause they're actually essentially part of your narrative that does feel deeper than good friend it feels something more like family and also for those of us who have like family members that are like complicated or no longer in the picture like I don't you know (laughs) without being too personal about it I'm like I don't have like super good feelings about you know some of my family members but I have like really good feelings about some of my friends that have really taken over for family members and like I think that's like that's what's complicated about relationality yeah I think that's complicated about relationality but I don't think like I almost think it's an oversimplification of the human experience to say if you feel like a super close friend then you're like a relative like why can't that just be its own thing I think it's a failure of language like in English we don't have yeah it's a fail yeah we don't have an intermediary between super good friend and like brother and here let's go let's take it back to the incest yeah you're friends with a member of the gender you're sexually attracted to yeah. Not to be all when Harry met Sally about it. Yeah. But that's a bit, that's different than them being like your brother. Yeah. It's always going to be different. I mean, I would love to say that it's different. Like you don't want to fuck your brother, but in this book, like you want to fuck your brother. Yeah. So then like, this really, this really fixes and confounds when Harry met Sally. So it's such a, it's such a good example of that. You're so <laughs> correct in that. Like men and women can't be friends. People who have sexual feelings about each other can't be friends. But also can be friends, but also can't because they're also like relationally related, like via like fucking chromosomes. It's complicated. (laughs) Incest isn't complicated. Well, actually, hold on. It is. Have you heard of genetic sexual attraction? Yes. People who read about it on Jezebel. Yeah. People who are and there is recently pretty public court case about it. Mm -hmm. People who are genetically sexually attracted. Well, okay, so like the example that's always given is a baby is given up for adoption, lives its life with another family, comes into sexual maturity without ever knowing the family and then meets the family. And there is an immediate 
instinctual attraction that is understood as sexual by the people involved. For instance, a parent and child or a sibling. Right, because they can't understand it as sexual or they can't understand it as non-sexual because they don't understand that they're family. Yeah, they don't understand them as family. But there's like something about the fact that whenever you're genetically connected to someone, you have this kind of bond or tether. Recognition. This recognition, this biological affect perhaps. Yeah. That you understand the nuances and the shades of yes. the intensity yes. without interpreting it as sexual. But if you come into sexual maturity without having that tether from childhood and that ingrained sensibility from childhood, then also that it ingrained can sense be of taboo construed. Well, you still have the sense of taboo, but you just don't like you know it's wrong, but you still feel that. Ooh desire yeah and like in so many ways this for nearness i guess <laughs> yeah i mean once again it's a feeling that i see and i I read about on jezebel and i know i will i just don't have it you know i don't understand that feeling i don't understand what it's like to have a sister i don't understand what it's like to have a twin i don't understand what it's like to have a sibling who is in high school with me even like it just seems like human experience is so varied i mean this has really gone off the rail <laughs> but it just seems like human experience is so varied like twins really symbolize this for me that it's like sometimes I just feel like even the affective world is way too big to understand like there are feelings out there that I'm like I will never get I guess sure I feel that way maybe about like committing murder not one I feel that way Um, but the way in which like Cormac and Dunna are described as twins who are essentially Cain and Abled. I guess what I'm really saying are relationships I don't understand. I will never have that relationship. I don't, but like, I think that's also really limiting. Like you, you have like really good girlfriends who are like sisters. I don't think they are. Why do you say that though? What, what is your inhabitation of sister? And my aunt. And like their relationship is different than pretty much every friendship I've had. And like you grow up together. That's different. Like I've had, a, I've had, I have a really great friend. Shout out to Valerie, who I've known since I was really small. Mm-hmm. And we spent tons of time at each other's houses. Mm-hmm. But I know that my relationship is not going to be like her relationship with her sister. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe like, I mean, I'm, I'm very close with my own sister. And so like, yeah. this is like, I'm thinking about this. But my sister and I are separated by a number of years. We did not go to high school together. We were not. I was in fourth grade when she was a senior in high school. So like that part of it, we weren't close for, but like I'm extremely close with her, but like in so many other ways, like in kind of the ways that you're describing, I feel like a sisterhood for some of my childhood friends, like because they knew me in ways that like Katie did, but also couldn't, you know? Yeah. It's, it's different though. It's, I don't, it's a kind of sisterhood, but it's not sisterhood. Ah, see like that parse. Do you know? Like so, do you know the thing about your gal pals is they will never have a legal say in whether or not to put your parents in a home, for example. Oof. Okay, so that part makes more sense to me than it's a kind of sisterhood versus it is sisterhood because, like, I I don't understand how to parse that, but like, yes, the legality of like sharing chromosomes at that point, yes, I the legality that, that is translated into through whatever like interpretation or like a biological affect, sure. So you see what I mean? Kind of. And I also think like twins, I'm like, you shared a womb with somebody. 
and you like shared a crib with somebody and people can constantly conflated you as like one unit with somebody. And that's really problematic in this book. It does get some, some real trouble. Some real trouble with the conflation of identity. And maybe that's The conflation what of identity. Even when it's uh, not identical twins, there's a conflation of identity. Yeah. And I think like this book, like maybe that's an entry point for us in this book. Where it's like this conflation of identity is really, really damaging in all of the ways that it presents. And like it is known to be damaging. It's physically, emotionally, in every way that it can be damaging, it is. And I think like that's really true if you like don't feel seen if and especially if you feel like conflated with something that like you abhor or like like Cain does not want to be conflated with Abel and vice versa yeah but I think there's also something about like Cormac's empowerment via anonymity yeah level of anonymity that is granted by having like your identical other right and like then enacting sins through the identical other yeah which is like this book is so weird twins are such a great like soap opera yes endlessly fascinating i mean twins are if you're a twin do you ever look at your twin and think like we could do some shit we could get up to some stuff not not well not (laughs) like that although like that in this book yep but also like an old switcher i mean you must have the parent trap i would be really yeah i would be really surprised if there weren't twins if there are twins in this world who haven't like tricked somebody intentionally yeah i mean it's like right for it i don't know and like that's one of the things about like the the way i just instead of saying they're twin i said they're other I think it's right to say they're other in terms of this novel. And yeah. like this novel is working on that idea rather I don't, than I don't actual think you're relation. Defined by being the other of your twin twins. No, we don't think that. But this novel is working on that idea. Like this like idea of like a negative identity or an anonymity by uh, subsuming someone else. And like consumption here especially seems to be at work. Conspicuous consumption is a real anchor of this book yes like from when we first get to Gaywick and we've seen like the luxurious home in New York and heard about the operas and the carriages with like the livery and and the the party servants and the booze and the you know we've heard about conspicuous consumption we've seen some of it but then you get to Gaywick and the first thing he's greeted with is this sculpture of pan <laughs> that's right who is like gloriously lugubriously yeah. nude yeah and kind of frightens robert robert and you can tell denver's kind of gets off on it <sighs> denver's is immediately so gross but, but also like tender and weird there's this other pan who's like in the mm-hmm. greenhouse who's like grabbing his d mm-hmm. making an angry face mm-hmm. yeah and it's like why have two pan sculptures like i get that it's like it's really speaking to like the good twin evil twin in the book mm-hmm. but it's also speaking to like conspicuous consumption mm-hmm. they have an entire greenhouse just because cormac was growing special kinds of orchids mm-hmm. To, like, basically kill insects. Like, yeah. Like, he was growing beautiful flowers so he could kill bugs. Yeah. And his brother 
Donna, who's like basically our romantic hero, is like obsessed with collecting gems. Yeah. And like that's another way in which the two are separated. Like one's hobby involves the death of something else and the other's hobby is like essentially innocuous. What could be more conspicuous consumption than gems? Gems. (laughs) And he gets his friends this enormous parrot. And they're like, we can't keep this because we we have have seven cats. We have seven Persian cats. Conspicuous consumption. I love Donna is like, and Donna is like, I've always wanted a parrot. He says like, <laughs> I'm so sorry. Cause he gets it for them for Christmas. Yeah. They're all having a nice Christmas. And like this bird shows up and like this actual hilarious moment of like total fucking farce. It's like, there's so few moments of humor in this book. And like, that's one that's it's actually like getting really your girlfriend funny. a jock strap <laughs> when you really want a jock strap. Yeah. Cause he gets to take it home with him in the carriage. Like he summons the carriage just for the bird that he knew that good body and Mortimer couldn't have. Yeah. Cause he forgot about them having seven, motherfucking cats who all wanted to kill the bird well I guess yeah they did but like also Mortimer and Goodbody got each other cats so they only really had like four or five at the time but like it grew to seven in that moment which is also it's like it's like a comedy of errors it's really funny it's one of the only funny parts of the book yeah this book is not funny no it's and like there are parts really of the book dark like, what what I was reading on Goodreads. So one of the things while you're pulling that up from okay. Goodreads is that we have to think about is that the the two major women that we meet in the first 75% of the book are the two moms. One of whom is like crazy. I don't want to be a mom. But then once the twins are born, becomes obsessed with both their growth and like their uh, education. And she's like, she's typical helicopter parent, like crazy. And she cannot see Cormac's faults for what they are she's like essentially blind to it and she goes into a decline when the boys are about 15 and dies and essentially the same thing happens to Robert's mother when he is 17 there's this really moving scene where she's like throughout his childhood she's like really sensitive to the fact that he doesn't want to be physical and that he's like frail and sad all the time like she lets him read books and like they hang out together and like there's this moment when he's 17 where she's just at the dining table weeping silently with her like head bowed and just like cannot breathe sobbing and he leaves her there and then his dad comes back from work and sees her like that where she's still weeping like 12 hours later and like storms into his room and is like how could you leave your mother like this why didn't you come and get me and he's like I don't know I thought it'd resolve on its own and like it's from that moment on like that represents her psychotic break or like this moment of like hysteria since that's the like time frame that this book is working in and like she's like sent to an asylum because of it and like those are the two major women in this book so on on a goodreads message board user charles which congratulations on being the first charles charles he describes uh the book and it's such he's so good good job charles says mix up the love of don jose and carmen season with an overwrought and overwritten prose style of a charlotte bront poser jacked on caffeine and amphetamine yes then toss with a soup song of titus andronicus yes voila gaywick yes and i think the soup song of titus andronicus because wow it's violent yeah denver's loses fingers brian has his trying to touch a penis yeah that's why he gets his fingers cut off. Because he thinks that he's making love to Donna, and it turns out that he's making love to Cormac, and Cormac is psycho. Yeah. And cuts off his fingers. But also, he was Donna and Cormac's teacher from childhood. Yeah. So that's pretty fucked up. 
I don't like it when college professors get weird with their 20 year old students. I'm no. definitely not down with this. I think, okay, so it's 1975. Then there's the gross Welsh guy. Uh, yeah, there's so many gross things about this book. So it's 1975 when this book is written. Godfather Part Two has just won the Academy Award for Best Picture. And Vincent Vargas spends the next five years trying to get this fucking tome published. And what's interesting for maybe our listeners is that after 46 rejections, he gets accepted by Avon. 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 And they published this in 1980 and heralded it as the thing that it is, which is the the first gay romance novel that was like trade back published. So riddle me this. Why isn't it a bigger deal? Yeah. Where the fuck is its Wikipedia page? Yeah. Like it's obviously I think this is truly I think people talk about cult things like I read a lot of beauty blogs and people talk about products being cult products. And uh I don't know. I think something of cultiness is a is a lesser knownness, not just like a fanatical following. Maybe it's time we start saying Yves Saint Laurent Touche Eclat is not a cult, but a religion. <laughs> because it's very mainstream. But I would say Gaywick is genuinely a cult work of art. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any other way to describe it. The fact that it is so truly forgotten by the internet or like But really the unknown, people who know it are like obsessed. Obsessed. And not just obsessed because they're like, this is a great book. They like understand its problems. It's very problematic. And not just that it's problematic, but it's, it's, it's overwrought. It's chock full of intentional direct quotes. The one that stood out to me, and I think this says a lot about me and Isabeau. Isabeau was like, God, he's constantly quoting Shakespeare. And I was like... God, he's constantly quoting Faye Dunaway from <laughs> The Great Gatsby because he goes into whenever he gets mm. to see Donna's house in New York, he says, I've never seen so many beautiful shirts. Yeah. Yeah. And like there are two full pages of Whitman poem quotes. Like this book is so referential. This book is like yeah. constantly shipping itself out and like shipping other romantic characters and like plots and like other shit. I'm like, what is happening? There are parts that don't matter. Like the entire story of their second nanny who they liked, who was <laughs> Irish, is like utterly irrelevant. Yeah, there are lots of like real Contains false tangents. No conflict. It's true. Also, Cormac's not dead. <laughs> which we were told throughout the novel that he died in a fire saving his father not true probably pushed his dad into the fire there's also this incredible like weird tangent about the grandparents one of whom Jenny Lee is a southern belle whose parents die in like Atlanta during Sherman's burning of yes, Atlanta yes there's this whole story about <laughs> like that's like that's crazy and you read it because you're like this you're is like, gonna come back yeah but it and doesn't it, does. it does not it is such a fucking trip it is this book is it's like it is it is a wild ride i'm gonna say like i'm i you know it's not like i would never call this one of my favorite romance novels but it is the only romance novel that caused me to miss my train stop Because when it gets going, whew, you just can't get off. Like, that's like, that's its thing. Like, you roll immediately from a fevered sex dream about, like, your body becoming waves and pounding into one another to the idea that someone has been in your room and left you a blood orchid to Christmas with good body and Mortimer, a Haitian prince who has, like, 
is yelling in the hallway to good body that you're in love with Donna and you're like, I am in love with Donna and I'm not afraid to admit it, but Donna doesn't oh, know. I'm so hippie. <laughs> I knew knew that I'm in love with Donna. Slash my mother who's just been put into an asylum and then AKA my cousin. AKA my mother cousin. AKA <laughs> Donna's aunt. AKA like what the fuck? So listen, I, I can't recommend gay work highly enough. <laughs> Here's why I am not surprised I recommended it. I wanted something gothic, gang. I love gothic. I love Seconded. gothic. And you can tell when you're reading this book that the author is real wet for Daphne du Maurier. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is it is and Heathcliff. Yeah, and it is a very gothic novel yep. but it's also like super it's kind of campy yeah they're winging buttresses there's also like a real I don't constantly know. name dropping mm-hmm. artists all Cezanne, Monet, Monet. Every woman in this book is somehow fainting on a couch yeah. in a feathered robe yeah even though she's not described as such there's like no other way to see her. She's definitely crazy or hysterical has wandering womb syndrome is like an unknowable thing. Yeah I think okay so it's like best left unsolved yeah totes like nobody is like interested in that <laughs> spaghetti cave no one's interested in that spaghetti hut that's right um and a steven holy <laughs> shit i forgot about steven <laughs> or fucking seth jones <laughs> seth jones oh the 13 year old blackmailer who can't read slash can read and that's how he's blackmailing everyone terrible teeth and terrible skin (laughs) his rivers and keys are like very in love with him because he's young is the thing and And he's like but you kind of get the impression that he's like a real hustler type yeah totally he's like a gambler but like a bad kind of like a hustler like a young male prostitute hustler yeah but also like a card trick because he's using their sexuality against them all the time yeah like a hustler yeah but like like Sawyer from Lost he's like an unlikable disgusting tooth I don't think he's like Sawyer from Lost but like he's hustling them he's blackmailing them he's using his their sexuality against them he's like impersonating Cormac at points with his like weird fucking body horror yeah his body horror (laughs) is something we haven't even broached I think we've talked a little bit about it we've nodded towards the (laughs) <laughs> that there's legitimately a scene where the narrator looks upon a mutilated penis and goes, oh, it's not so bad. <laughs> I thought it was totally off. I thought it was totally off, but it's like still there. And then he's like, does it still work? And the guy's like, doctors tell me it does. And then we find out in the epilogue that it does and he has three children with Margaret. Yeah, but it's like, homeboy, how do you not know? <laughs> he was really... What are you like, doctors are tell, tell me it does. But I've somehow managed to never have an erection. He's too afraid. of a tent. He's too afraid. He's never even woken up with morning wood. Because so he's so how afraid. how could he know? He's so afraid. Brought his penis. Hey, Womance listeners, Isabeau here. And if you love Womance and you love what we do, would you do me a huge favor and click subscribe on your favorite podcasting app? And if you have just that extra second, would you go ahead and give us a rating as well? 
Ratings and subscriptions help keep this podcast going. Let's other people know where we are. Let's other people in on the delicious secret that is romance and romance in general. And more than that, don't keep us a secret. Tell your friends. Tell your mom. Tell her about the juicy bits. But, you know, let her discover the details. Because romance and womance is all about discovery. Thanks for listening. We look forward to seeing you. Body horror. Everything's beheaded. Tulips are beheaded. Bumblebees are beheaded. The cat goes missing. And I was like, oh shit. And then the cat's fine. Although the cat like hisses at people and you think they're ghosts, but then they're real because like they scream when the cat scratches them. Like I like the cat feels like supernatural at points, but is also like incredibly corporeal. And paintings like, move. Painting like all the time there's like this painting of twins that like shows up and then is moved and then shows back up like the way in which like the the wife in the attic trope of Jane Eyre is working in this is like not even like the thing is whenever you watch a gothic movie Mm -hmm. the cattle hiss at nothing yeah and the paintings will move yeah it's subtle when you see it in a movie but Gaywick is not subtle it is not subtle also Gaywick is supremely unsubtle because you have to explicitly state the painting was moved yeah like you can't leave it to the audience to realize the painting showed up by looking at it yeah or that like, or that there's nothing there that the cat's hissing at or that robert like doesn't there's this whole thing too with like the camera and mm-hmm. like the weird plates and then like developing the film and then like he's like i've been talking with this female ghost who looks exactly like me slash isn't me slash kind of looks like my mom but like haggard and terrible yeah and he's like she's not real she's totally a figment of my fevered sexuality because I can't have Donna. And then... Which, what a weird conclusion to draw about yourself. Right? Like, Robert has a really low opinion of himself. Um, And then he, like, captures her on film and she's 100% real and also his mother. And, like, frankly, like, I know it happened. I don't know how we got there. Oh, God. Yeah, it's like I read all the words, but then things started happening in a way and I'm like, how the fuck is Cormac alive? But also, like, like, Cormac was alive. the most perfectly constructed postmodern novel of all time what is up what is down it washes over you you Mm. it feels like you dreamed it i'm not even i'm scared to bring stuff up because i'm not sure it was true like did their dad have sex with them maybe he was was like definitely having sex with denver's and like that's steven and steven so like that's also another question because like like, what do we know about steven like nothing (laughs) but like that's the other part of this book so we we are 100% always in first person Robert narration except when we get the diaries and except when other people are relating the diaries to Robert. We switch rings. <laughs> That's right. what I remember of the diary. We switched rings but also like I hope he doesn't punish S or I hope I don't mind being dad as long as Cormac isn't S or he said that he would punish D and I'm like who's D? Is D Dunna? Is D Denver's is like is D no one like and ev- oh, okay okay here's one thing that I do want to say so the diaries are told almost exclusively in all capital letters mm-hmm. Harry Potter in book five is almost exclusively in all capital letters when he's angry and every time I encountered a diary entry I read it in angry Harry Potter teen voice do it <laughs> show us I'm Harry Potter I'm so important I hope he doesn't punish D that's how I read the diary <laughs> I'm the chosen one. Very good. Thank you.
Um, that's how I read it. I think that's really true to form. But like, so like, what other is, ways can we relate this to Harry Potter? How is this a song of hope? I mean, it's nice because like, there's positivism associated with falling in love with a member of the same sex. Sure, Good Body and Mortimer are positive. Good Body and Mortimer are positive. For I mean, I, this feels weird to say, but aside from the cousin thing. Donna and Robert are positive and they yeah. do end up together like Donna dies in Robert's arms in 1969 which seems yeah. really nice it's been a long time together yeah I think there's a really really beautiful moment on Donna's birthday where uh, Robert drinks too much champagne and gets drunk and Donna carries him up the stairs I to know bed anything about that and he says I love champagne and I love you and Donna gets like really stiff and is like you know you should just go to bed hey. <laughs> yeah right and he's like no 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 I love you and he's like you know you tell me that in another day and like there are ways in which this book feels soft and tender even if yeah. it's overwrought and like ridiculous oh we forgot to mention the part the I just part, love the ocean the part where Robert finds a cave behind a waterfall wherein the twins and, <laughs> have left paintings and uh, good body and Mortimer yeah. have left cave paintings of men having sex with other men and there's this really lovely moment where Richard or Robert is like oh that's me like a moment of self-recognition and then he masturbates yeah in a way that's pretty explicitly yeah masturbation and acknowledgement of sexual desire and identity I think there are a lot of ways in which like this like older man trope could have been creepy and like never was yeah other than like the incest and like the gothic themes in general but like what a weird thing to say yeah could have been creepy but other than the incest it was lovely um and like there's like there's no overtones of like lolita there's no overtones of like advantage being taken there like love makes them equals and i think it matters so much when we talk about romance as an important place that this book received 46 rejections before Avon accepted it and printed it in 1980. Yeah, like good on Avon, good on romance for recognizing what it like what it means to like and regardless of yeah. our true feelings about Kathleen Woodowis, she was rejected over and over again by major publishing houses that were like this is way too long. Also, and cantaloupes romance- and breasts are not the same. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then romance publishers were like, you don't have to cut out anything. We're going to publish your You get it all, baby girl. You get it all. All 666 pages. Mm, get it done. God. Get it done. Vincent Verga and his vision were enough for Avon. And Kathleen Woody West and her story were enough for Avon. Or not necessarily. Was it Avon? It might have been Harlequin. I don't remember. But whatever. <laughs> Right, like they were found enough for romance. Yeah, they found homes in romance, and romance is about identity. Romance is about inclusion, ostensibly. Yeah, it's about finding yourself in maybe even moments of alterity or like looking for self recognition. And I think yeah. the fact that and Vincent Sir- Verga was published in Avon is really, really telling. And there's something about indulgence. Yeah, that is always political. How you choose to indulge is always political. Yeah, and so. So if you're supporting something indulgent, you're committing a political act. Hard agree. Achingly hard agree. (laughs) 
throbbingly hard I'd agree. agree. Just yes. waves crashing into each Pounding other. Agree. Pounding into each other agree. And I think that's like, I think you've said this before, Morgan, and I think it's so true that like this idea that pleasure is political. Yeah. And I think um, the way in which romance sometimes forgets that, the way in which romance likes to pretend that that isn't true, isn't speaking to the heart of what romance is. And like Vincent right. Varga, Kathleen Woodowis, Beverly Jenkins and Alyssa Cole are, you know, inheritors of indulgence as political. And I think that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I'm like happy to be in my apartment in candlelight talking to you about this as we indulge in a Malbec and talk about this crazy book. Yeah. Like, you know, here we, here we are. Mm -hmm. And we come together all the time to like find reassurance in one another. Yeah. And like, and other readers of romance as someone who's new to the genre, like getting to spend time on Twitter. Oh my God. Yes. And like the way in which these conversations are happening, like the romance community is so endlessly fascinating and the way in which writers have to respond and are called upon to respond not only in their published works but also via social media is has been so endlessly fascinating to me and like so beautiful about the genre itself it's so self-responsive and I think part of it like 60% of published works are on the backs of romance like yeah romance is keeping publishing alive friendos and I think there's something inherent in saying like you are enough yes by people investing in books like Gaywick. Yes. And investing in books like Rose and Winter. Mm, yes. By saying you are enough. What you like is enough. You don't need to be, I don't want to be pointed, but you don't have to be Michael Chabon. And you don't have to read Jonathan Franzen to be interesting. Yeah, exactly. Like, And I mean, this comes from being in a capitalistic system. And romances are, are beholden to capitalism. They both speak to it and answer to it in yeah. very particular ways. Yeah. And I think that's so interesting about the genre itself, where it's like both a critique of capital, but endlessly subject to. Yes, a critique of capital and endlessly subject to. Because I think it's important we keep in mind capitalism is patriarchy. Totes. Patriarchy is fascism. <laughs> yes. Endlessly so. And that's bad. Fascism is. is bad. It is. We can say that. And like, no, hate isn't easier, as somebody said on Twitter recently. And like, I think one of the things that Gaywick, like, and there's something really unique about romance in that it is part and parcel of capitalism, but it's a positivist. Yes. In a lot of ways. So this like brings us full circle. Vincent Varga in 2009 wrote this afterward to Gaywick that was like, this is a song of hope. This is a novel that's intrinsically positivist about a young gay character who comes into his sexuality and it's not immediately criticized or subverted or shunned. And he really meets others who have been tortured and are tortured about their sexuality but he also meets people who are open to the thing that they are yeah and like so then having a cast of characters across the spectrum of sexualities is really important but like in this way Gaywick for all of its like melodrama (laughs) and craggy ocean faces is doing something that feels very modern and like very of our Hmm. moment which says hey you too. I see you. And I think romance is good at that. From your goofy Denvers, <laughs> whether you're a Denvers, a Keys, a Robert or a Seth Jones. <laughs> like, you're interesting. You're worthwhile. You can find yourself in a book. Having said that, let's treat this like any other romance novel, even though it's a bit of a bear. What was the sexiest part for you? Obviously, the ocean fever dream. Mm. 
I mean, I, there were other parts too that I highlighted where like there's this line, I, I used it earlier where um, Robert says their love made them equals and like love isn't compromised. And then he immediately corrects that, which I think is good because love is always compromised. Masturbation scene in the cave for me. <laughs> That's amazing. You're so adorable. Um, <laughs> Thank you for saying so. I love it. Do you hear that, mom? I'm adorable. Morgan is adorable. For me, this, the, the sexiest scene is the fever dream where they both turn into ocean because like that's a sex dream that I think I would have <laughs> it was like imagine the worst person you know describing this dream to you it was like he was coming out of the ocean but then we were both the ocean but also ourselves but I was like still me and he was still him but we were also the ocean and so like and then it just would like, slap up against me and like roll and then like roll but back it was in like, it was like waves but like waves on waves but like I was a wave but also Here's not the thing. I, I love it this, I hope you read this book and it Please. encourages you to workshop how you <laughs> talk to people about your dreams <laughs> or your sex because I'm totally tired of hearing people do a bad job of describe their dreams to me also i'm tired of hearing people describe their sex badly um isabel is only interested in sex when it's a reverse birth penis situation <laughs> that is not true i'm interested in all sorts of other sexes <laughs> okay what's the weirdest part for you God, like i don't like anything to do with cormac like really the thing that skewed me out the most was the impossible way to parse out Denver's like Denver's is like their tutor he shows up when they're six has a sexual relationship that begins when Cormac is between 13 and 14 which is abusively young that's more than statutory rape that's child rape and like I don't I didn't know but I'm like but the text wants me to like Denver's like yeah. explicitly so but it's like impossible for me to like Denver's because he's like a child rapist so then like that's hard and the way in which this text is dealing with that is weird because having his fingers cut off feels like too much of a punishment but like maybe it's not I didn't think it was too much of a punishment <laughs> I just like I don't know Denver's was the hardest part for me to parse out because like the text wanted me to do something that I was unprepared to do which was like him so as ever I go second and I'm left with like <laughs> a weird part that makes me seem like a weirdo but since you pointed out Denver's I'm gonna say I didn't find Donna all that likable I didn't understand why everyone was so into him he's like aloof yes you know, if, if people like him just because he's beautiful, that's fine. But you don't have to constantly be like, he's so nice. Because nice people are good at giving gifts. That's true. They don't give people parents who already have like a bunch of cats. Yeah. And like nice people are like conscientious of mm. what's going on in their homes and don't like force Seth Jones. Oh, yeah. Nice people burn diaries when they say that they will. And don't leave them around for Seth Jones to blackmail the entire household with yeah and like I just I just don't buy that he's even that interesting like I think his greatest inequality with Cormac is that Cormac is almost so interesting he's boring because you know he's gonna do the worst possible thing <laughs> literally and Donna is so boring he's boring yeah I think that's fair I don't get why he's like I mean I know I'm supposed to be like oh he's so beautiful yeah and he's nice like right he's like Abel if but, Abel hadn't been murdered but he's not nice Nice. He's nicer than Kane. <laughs> I guess. He's nicer than Cormac, which is a pretty low threshold. <laughs> it's the lowest threshold in the world. 
And so I just didn't buy our hero that much. And I also didn't buy. Yeah, I didn't like Robert either. Yeah. I don't know who I liked in the book. I don't even think I like Good Body and Mortimer uh, Mortimer that much. They were so fun. I liked that they existed. They, they were like each other. the best couple. They were the best people in the book, but that's not saying much. That's true. And they were the only like real couple that like didn't feel like mismatched or like shoehorned or like. And also, was Brian wanting. actually mute or was he? No, he wasn't. That's the thing. <laughs> oh yeah, Brian marries a person named Margaret, and they have three children together. And then Robert and. And Donna basically like raised slash adopt their middle child. That's basically in the epilogue. Spoiler. Womance or no mance? You answer first. Womance. Get serious. This is right up my alley. This shit's crazy. I love it. It's all over the place. I think you should read it. I would call it a romance. Actually, hold on. We need to come up with a rubric. Yes, we do. Because I did not enjoy the romance aspects of this book. I loved everything about this book that wasn't the romance part. Yeah, exactly. So does that make it a romance? I think it, I want you to read it. And so I want to call it a romance. I think we should call it a want to read romance. No. Romance being our objective, a week to be wicked standard. No man's being our Montana sky or beast your razor head of romance beast was a romance for me and if beast is a romance uh, then this is just a farther do you know what it's not boring it's not all boring the time. it's not even boring when it's boring once yeah you, once you settle in like once you like yourself once you buckle up read it in the winter time or if it's a real rainy summer wherever you are yeah like if you're in scotland read the shit out of this book you know what we need to come up with something between womance and no man's can we call it a i think it's just a womance like if you want if if you want people to read it like here's the thing people don't read montana sky i'm fine with it i'm like you're fine can you believe the only book we've read that my mom has read is montana sky (laughs) and it was the only book we both called a no man's that's really funny what a contrarian my mother is. <laughs> complicated relations <laughs> so if we're gonna stick with our rubric which is non-existent the, the sex scenes were great we want people to read it sex scenes weren't great well a lot of them were about a young man not being willing to roll over and getting his penis mutilated that wasn't a sex scene that was like a scene of violence the other sex scene was denver's trying to feel up a 13 year old boy and getting his fingers also a scene of violence i know there's not sex scenes there's a dream i love the dream there's the masturbation scene but then there's that scene like after christmas when robert finds out about his dad's death and like weeps into the bear chest of Donna. I would call that a beautiful scene of intimacy. I thought they were going to have sex and was was surprised that they didn't. And like he's just like crying into his pectoral muscles and like holding him. Should have just had some cheesy potatoes. Right? And then he just like slides his hand up his like muscular statuesque back and like there's this discussion about putting his hand. What about the scene when they go to the gym together? (laughs) God, there's so And Donna's like this is how you can get rich. Yeah. For me. And they like touch each other's scapulas. I'm like some pretty never mind. Yeah. Like there are a lot of But like any scene scenes. that explicitly deals with sex tends to be bad. Oh, totally. Or like violent or like abstracted. Okay, I'll give you that. I don't know. Scapulas are really sexy in this book. I'm going to say it's a romance. Okay. Here's why. Great. The Criterion Collection... <laughs> Yes. Has released Armageddon. Oh my God, yes. And if that has happened, if Armageddon is a criterion release, then Gaywick is for 
fucking sure a woe man. I don't like the aspersions you're casting on the American classic I am not going to talk to you about Armageddon right now. Good. Because I'll fucking fight you. But also, I agree. Isabeau only likes sex whenever it's reverse birth with a penis. <laughs> or whenever animal crackers Here's the thing. are involved. Do you, want me, do you want me to lay down some truth for you? About Is it about Armageddon? Duh. I'm going to let you get this out of your system. It's never going to be out of my system. Ed, does everybody want to listen to a story about Armageddon and Isabeau? No. <laughs> You're such a jerk. So I saw Armageddon when it came out at the second run theater in Shawano, Wisconsin, which is a town of 6,000. It was whatever. The Pretty sec- big. Yeah. The second run theater was called the Crescent and it was, there was smoking on one side and no it's smoking on the other. smoking in a movie theater? Yeah. Yeah. This is where I lived. And what was funny about the partition between the smoking and non-smoking sections of the Crescent Theater was that nothing separated them. You just sat on the left side if you wanted to smoke and you sat on the right side if you didn't. So there's like absolutely no barrier. No signage? No. Just like it was unspoken. Um, You could buy a beer for $2. You could buy a pizza for three. You could buy a bot like a bottomless pit of popcorn for $1.50. Like the Crescent Theater was ideal. So I go and I watch uh, Armageddon when it first came out. And I went with um, my dad because he loved big shoot 'em up apocalypse movies. And um, there's <laughs> shoot 'em up. We're going to shoot up a comet. <laughs> yeah. An asteroid. Um, you're right. I'm so sorry. I'm no, so embarrassed. You should be. No, I, just, I just didn't know that there was. <laughs> it's, it's an asteroid specifically. And um, it's, you know, there's that awkward sex scene. It was like the first time that I remember like, that that nobody Can I provide a little background music <laughs> only if you know the song i could stay awake <laughs> just to hear you sleeping see you sleeping keep going no what? you're gonna ruin it <laughs> Anyway, so we see this movie, and then since it's so cheap to go see this movie, I end up seeing it three more times that summer, and I and I love it, and it's like this really good memory that I have of my dad, and like we have this memory together. Anyway, um, flash forward many years, and I am planning my wedding, and I'm like, hey dad, what song do you want to dance to? No. Yeah, you know what song my dad suggests? Because he's like, it's a daddy-daughter dance, and I'm like, no, no. it's not, dad. Just because... <laughs> Just because Steven Tyler sang it to Liv Tyler does not make it a dad daughter. I shut my dad down so hard. And then like I thought about it and like we were going to dance to Glenn Miller's Moonlight Serenade, which is just a beautiful instrumental piece. And I thought about it and I thought about it because I'm like, dad, you're such a cheese ball. And like I get why you think this thing. And so I I concoct a plan where it's going to be both classy and cheese ball, which is pretty much the line I want to ride in my life forever. Was it Butterfly Kisses? No, fuck you. It's never that song. Um, So we begin. Butterfly Kisses. After Bedtime prayer, sticking little wet flowers all up in her hair. Anyway, so Moonlight Serenade begins, and Dad and I are dancing at my wedding. And I told the DJ uh, that about 38 seconds through the first part, that we would have to switch to Don't Wanna Miss a Thing by Aerosmith. And it was like, the, no. yeah, the gift that I gave my dad. 
<laughs> so like it was a total surprise. Did he cry? He cried like a baby. And first like so we're dancing and then like the music switches and he looks at me and he's like oh shit like something terrible has just happened and like I have to keep my cool because like this is like a thing and there are all these people here and then like the first strains of Steven Tyler's singing comes through and he looks at me and he just bursts into tears. And I <laughs> could stay awake just to see you sleeping. That's why he thought it was a daddy daughter dance because yeah. dads watch their kids sleeping. Kids sleep. Yeah. And so like while you're far away dream. dreaming. Anyway. Wonder if it's me you'll see. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I kiss your eyes. That's another daddy daughter And thing. thank God we're together. Yeah. Yeah. It is pretty. Yeah. And it's like <laughs> it's so <laughs> I've done such a big impression of your precious memory. And like what's special about that it's the first song that Aerosmith didn't write for themselves. It was the first number one that they had. Every other song that they had was number two on the Billboard charts. You mean like, that they wrote for a soundtrack? No. Aerosmith wrote all their own music. This is the first song that was written for them by someone else. Oh, they didn't write they it? They didn't write it. That explains a lot. Yeah, it does explain because a lot. Because they're really great songwriters. I'm going down. Yeah. So like, there's a lot to it. And like, that moment in particular where I was like, you know what? Cheese ball, daddy-o. You want this? I get why you want it. You cheese ball. Let's That's do it. That's a very sweet story and I really shit all over it and I feel terrible. Armageddon's an American classic. Joss Whedon wrote the screenplay. I mean, J.J. Abrams. Here we go. That's what I meant. I will... You want to know how good J.J. Abrams was structurally? Watch Felicity. Oh my God. Because Listeners, there is not... Watch Felicity. A not he cannot undo narratively. Mm hard throbbing agree impossible swelling agree (laughs) anyway don't shit on Armageddon it's the best movie ever well (laughs) probably not (laughs) Criterion released it The important thing is that Criterion does not release movies because they're cool or art house. They release movies because they're interesting. If you've ever taken a film class and you've had a film professor describe a movie as interesting, don't think you know what that means. And I say that goes for Gaywick. I think Gaywick is super interesting and that's why it's a romance. It's a romance. And you know what? It's a romance for all the reasons that we love romance. Like, it's an outcast. More people should write about it. I, I encourage someone to take it upon themselves to write a Wikipedia page for this. I encourage someone to contact Vincent Varga. Like, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to make a Wikipedia page. Somebody can do it. Somebody. Yeah, but one of you probably does. Isabel, that was such a nice story about your dad. <laughs> you love it. I feel like such a dick. It's okay. I love you. I also understand. Anyway, listeners... We encourage you to loosen your stays. But not your principles. Until next time. Hey, Womans listeners. Do you like us? I mean, like, do you not like us also? Are we a Womance or a Nomance? Tell us. Either way, the best way to tell us if we're a romance or a nomance is the same means, which is to rate us five stars on iTunes and subscribe to our pod. Please subscribe. Either way, we want to know what you're thinking. We are as responsive as the genre itself. (laughs) If you leave a bad comment, we might contact you personally at your home address. Tell us what you think. (laughs) We're real curious. 
I want to know, please subscribe and rate us five stars. That's the best way for other people to discover us. You drunkenly telling them at the bar is super great as well, but it's a lot more effective if you subscribe and rate us five stars. We are 100% Quinn curious. (laughs) Five star curious. Five stars. How many stars? One, two, three, four, five.